Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Anna and Ajit and Susan, for leading us in singing. This evening, we're going to be in the book of James. We're continuing our study through the book of James, and we're in chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13. James 2, 1 through 13. You can follow along in your Bible or on the screen behind me. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you, stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have given us your word, and that tonight we have the privilege of coming from wherever we have come, to sit under your word. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to do that. God, give us hearts to love what we see in your word. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to be shaped and changed and conformed more and more to the image of Christ because of this text. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so imagine with me, Imagine with me that a really, really important person walks into the room. They walk into the room right here. What should we do? Right? We, we have that decision to make. This important person walks in the room, and all of a sudden, we have questions going through our minds. Do we, do we pull them to the front? Do we invite them onto the stage and introduce them and thank them for being present with us? Do we uh, give them our business card? in hope that it, maybe we can leverage a bit of a connection and, and get a better job? Do we uh, try and connect them with the pastor to make sure they feel honored and, and especially welcome, hoping that they would come back next week? What should we do if a really important person walks into our room? Now, what should we do if a really unimportant person walks into our room? 
This person clearly has no money. They clearly have no connections. They clearly have no social status in society. What should we do? I'm guessing the idea of bringing them onto the stage to introducing them to you, giving them your business card, right? Trying to work connections, introducing them. That feels like a, well, of course we wouldn't do that. I may not know what to do with the really important person, but of course we wouldn't do that for this person. But why not? How, how should we think about the way that we treat people when they come into our assembly? How should we think about the way that we interact with people outside of this gathering? People who are brothers and sisters in Christ or those who aren't in Christ? What should make the difference for us? That's what we're going to be looking at tonight. You heard it read in James 2. We see a situation exactly like that described. And James helps us to know what sort of attitude to have. How we should think. What, what way should we view this person who comes in? In James 2, 1 through 13, he wants the church to value people the way that Christ values people. He wants the church to see people through the lens of the gospel. And to do this, he attacks the issue of partiality, of partiality. And we're going to look at three points today. Partiality described, partiality defined, and partiality defeated. Partiality described, partiality defined, partiality defeated. So first, let's look at partiality described. James sets up a situation exactly like I set up, basically. It would have been well-known and common. So James is writing probably to multiple churches, so it's not like Corinth, right, where Paul knows you're doing something. James is describing a practice that probably was a temptation for the first century church, or, or probably was a common practice in the first century church. But there's an issue with it. In the first century church, you had people from Jewish backgrounds and Gentile backgrounds. You had people who were high in society and people who were low. You had people who were wealthy and people who were poor. It was a mixed assembly. The gospel creates that mixed assembly, and yet in that life then, you have to figure out how do we operate? How do we interact with each other? What do we do with people from different cultures or different backgrounds or different statuses? And so being a mixed group, there are these social dynamics at play, and James tackles one of those, the issue of showing honor to one person and not showing honor to the other. Look at verse 1 again. James first gives the command, and then he describes the situation. My brothers, show no partiality. That's the command. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you, stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. I mean, you can picture the situation. You have a house church, probably, or a smaller assembly, and people are coming in, and someone comes in who's wealthy, and someone comes in who's poor. How do you interact with them? How do you treat them? Well, the church here that James is describing, this kind of hypothetical church, what they do is they say, look, rich man, sit here. Sit in the good spot. Sit 
in the seat of honor. You clearly have a nice ring on your hand. You're in fine clothing. You're an important person. Sit here. Sit right there, out of sight for the pastor, right? All of this, this is fair game. Right there, that's the safe space. Sit there, right? So that would be the temptation for the rich man, whereas the poor man, please, don't, don't be a distraction. You, you go stand over there on the side, or we're not even going to give you a seat. You just sit here at my feet. That's the way it's playing out. The, the, the connections team sorts through people as they enter the door. Now, if you were to talk to the church about why they might be tempted to do this, I'm sure that they would have reasons for this. Maybe this was culturally expected. You have someone from a high class in society, of course you're supposed to honor them. If you're a lower class, it is your duty, your cultural duty to pay them respect and pay them honor. That might be something that's going on. It might be worldly wisdom. I mean, just think about it. If this rich man felt at home here, he might even become a member of our church. If he becomes a member of our church, think about what that would do to our church budget. Think about all the things that we could do with those resources. It might attract other rich people to come to our church, and we could really do good things for the gospel, guys. Welcome this rich person. Make sure he feels at home here. There would probably be some reason for this, and it might make sense from the world's perspective. Unless we think that this is just some first century thing, this practice actually still happens today in different forms. I've talked to uh, a number of you, and I've been, quite frankly, surprised when I hear that in your home countries, some of your churches have rows reserved for the high givers. That, that people who give significance to the church have a seat. That they basically have the right to, and no one else has a right to that seat. I, in fact, even in my home country, I was reading a story a couple months ago about a church in New York City that really tried to be a welcoming place for influencers and celebrities and athletes. So what they would do is they would have people in the lobby looking for these folks as they would come in, identify them, go up, introduce them, take them to a reserved seat. After the service, take them in the back to meet the pastor. This is a well-known, very large church in New York City, a very large city, a prominent place. And yet, what's going on there is exactly what James is describing. Now, there might be good reasons to do this, or noble reasons to do this, though I'm very skeptical of that. But James has a word for what that is, and that is partiality. So that's what we're going to look like in this next point. We're, we've seen partiality described now we're going to look at partiality defined. If you were to look up a definition of partiality in the dictionary or on your computer, it would read something like this. Unfair bias in favor of one thing or person compared with another favoritism. So basically, partiality is making a decision favoring one person over another in a way that's unfair, in a way that's undeserved, in a way that's not merited. It's, it's not just. You treat someone differently than another person for really no deserved reason. And in the situation that James described, the, the church is clearly treating the rich man differently than the poor man. They're favoring the rich at the expense of the poor. If the rich sits there, then the poor man's not going to be able to sit there. And then the way that they're treating the rich man is totally contrasted with how they're treating the poor man. 
But James doesn't just call the action what it is, an act of partiality. He's going to actually define it in a couple other ways. So he's going to use other terms to kind of fill out this definition. And the two terms that he's going to use are judgment and law-breaking. Judgment and law-breaking. So first, partiality is defined as an act of judgment. Look at verse 4. If you have your Bible open, look at verse 4. James describing the situation to his readers in verses 1 through 3. He defines it as an act of judgment. Verse 4. Have you not then, in this situation I described, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? The church may think that it's simply doing something wise, doing something culturally acceptable or expected, but what it's doing is it's elevating itself to the position of judge. The members of the church are elevating themselves and saying, I have the ability to discern what is right and what is wrong. I have the ability to make a judgment call of favored and unfavored. In your partiality, you're making distinctions. You're practicing judgment. You're assigning value. That's what the church is doing here. How does this work? Well, our decisions, our distinctions that we make, reveal our values. They reveal the things that we love, the things that we prioritize, the things we value. I was telling uh, Hanny this last week, I think this last week, about um, what I jokingly call, when I was in the U.S., my Chipotle burrito standard for spending money in America. So in America, there's a restaurant called Chipotle. It's amazing. There's these burritos that are about this big. They're stuffed full of meat and rice and beans. They're outstanding. You can get two meals out of one of them for about 30 dirhams. They are fantastic. And I can't remember where I got this from. It may have been a professor in seminaries. That's what's going through my mind. But either way, I, I kind of began looking at the world through the lens of Chipotle burritos when I would spend my money. So if I know that this burrito is going to cost me 30 dirhams, then I have to buy something else that's 30 dirhams. Am I going to value that as much as I would value a Chipotle burrito? That's the standard. I know a Chipotle burrito is going to make me happy. It becomes my standard as to whether or not that item will make me happy as much as a Chipotle burrito. I have limited money. The option is not buy everything that I want. I have to have some way of making a distinction, and the burrito was the standard. A book? Yes. That book is going to make me happier than a Chipotle burrito. I will spend my money on that book. Snacks at the gas station on the way home from work? No. That will not make me as happy as a Chipotle burrito. I'm not going to spend that money. A t-shirt? Maybe. It depends on the shirt. Either way, what I'm doing there is I have a standard, and I'm making decisions based upon that standard. It's what I compare it to, and it's how I decide what's valuable and what's not valuable to me. When we show favoritism and make distinctions among the body, we are adding a standard for what is valuable to us. We are showing what we deem worthy, what we deem valuable, and are therefore pronouncing a judgment of worth, of value. How we see people is that judgment. When we show partiality to the wealthy, what we reveal is the thing that's my standard is money. That's what I value more than anything. If you have it, you measure up to my standard, and you're getting the seat of honor. 
If you don't have it, you don't measure up to my standard, you don't get the seat of honor. That is the standard that I'm valuing, and that's what I'm comparing your life against. If it's power, I'm viewing it through that lens. That's my value. Do you have power? Do you not have power? That's how I'm making my decision. Influence, status, all of those things. Partiality is a value statement. It shows what we love and what we favor. You are judging someone based upon the value that you think they will bring you. And this is why James says that this practice makes people judges with evil thoughts. The practice of partiality is not simply innocent or culturally acceptable or worldly wise. It's evil. The reason for this is because when you assign that sort of value to a person, you are going directly against what God values. You are contradicting what God himself values. Do you know what you call it when you rebel against what God loves? Evil. Sin wickedness. And that's what this judgment of partiality is. In the situation that James is describing, rich equals valuable. But that's directly contrary to God's value system. That is exactly opposite of the way that God works. Look at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. The church may have been choosing the rich, but God has chosen the poor. He has chosen the poor to be rich in faith. The church's judgment was evil precisely because it goes against God's judgment. Partiality elevated the church above others and against God himself. That's why it's evil. And this judgment doesn't even make sense. This judgment is not only evil, it's also stupid. That's the whole point of verses 6 through 7. In favoring the rich over the poor, you're favoring the sort of person, the sort of thing, saying this is what's most valuable, when those folks are actually oppressing you, (laughs) actually causing you harm, not bringing you value to your life, but actually bringing you damage. And they're blaspheming God himself. Look at verse 6. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into the court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Now, when James says rich, this is really important to get here for the book of James, because rich is going to show up. It's already showed up a little bit in chapter 1. It's going to show up later on in chapter 5. When James says rich, he's not saying money equals bad. He's talking about a certain type of rich person, a class of people who were oppressing the laborers of the day. You can see that. They're blaspheming the honorable name by which you were called. Now, there were wealthy Christians. We know that in the Bible. Presumably, wealthy Christians would not be blaspheming the honorable name. He's describing a class of people. It's not more or less righteous to be rich, but there are, there are things that are bad about loving and valuing money fact, the Bible says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. And so when wealth becomes your standard, it shows how corrupted you are. James will have more to say about the rich in chapter 5, but James here is speaking about a particular type of rich person. And the rich were persecuting the church. They were oppressing them. They were blaspheming the honorable name of God. And this is 
who the church is showing partiality towards. And so it's not just judgment, it's foolish judgment. So partiality is defined as judgment. Second, partiality is defined as law-breaking. Look at verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. James here sums up the whole law, the whole commandments of God, as saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the essence of what God requires, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We see it directly cited in Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And then Jesus, Jesus says the same thing. When he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus sums up the whole law with this saying. Verse 37 of Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus sums up as love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And then Paul writes the exact same thing in Galatians 5. Galatians 5, 14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So when James says in verse 8, if you really would fulfill the royal law, what he's talking about is he's talking about summarizing the whole law of God. And the core of the law is love your neighbor as yourself. And this exposes why partiality is such a bad thing. Why partiality is so abhorrent to God. Partiality is a failure to love your neighbor as yourself. Showing partiality, unmerited favoritism to one person over another person, undermines all of God's command. Loving your neighbor as yourself is the opposite of showing partiality. When we love our neighbors as ourselves, we don't show favoritism to ourselves. We're not evaluating people on what they can bring us. We're not objectifying people and treating them like objects for our use. We are loving them as ourselves. And we're not loving that neighbor and not that neighbor. We are loving all of our neighbors as ourselves. It could be said that the sum of God's commands is in one sense impartial justice. (laughs) That we live in a way that is just and righteous impartially. Not showing due favor to somebody who doesn't deserve it. We treat all others, regardless of status, the way they would want to be treated, the way that we would want to be treated. 
We love all of our neighbors, regardless of riches, as ourselves. And then James goes on and shows the sad irony of showing partiality. Showing partiality practices judgment. And in doing so, it will itself be judged. Showing partiality practices judgment, and in doing so, it will be judged itself. That's the point that James is trying to make in these verses. You may not commit adultery, but if you murder, there's a word for that. It's called breaking the law. You can't pick and choose and say, oh, no, 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 I'm only partially a lawbreaker. You either have broken the law or not. If you break one aspect of the law, you are a transgressor. That's what James says. Showing partiality is failing to keep the law. In fact, showing partiality is failing to keep the essence of the law. And so if that's the case, it is no small thing. In doing so, you're convicted of as a lawbreaker, which leads to the curse. So those who judge others, who say, rich, good, poor, bad, they themselves will be judged by God as a lawbreaker. Okay, that's heavy. We've seen partiality described. We've seen partiality defined. Defined as judgment and law-breaking. And hopefully we feel the weight of showing undue favoritism to people. Which means that we really need to know how to avoid doing that. If you will be judged for this action, you should want to know, how do I not do that action? This leads to our final point, partiality defeated. The reality is that you and me, we have a partiality problem. We do. It may not be overt in the way that we act, but we make value statements about other people based upon our unfair bias all the time in our hearts. We treat people as objects for our own selfish gain and, and pleasure all the time. How many of us assume that our culture is better than other people's culture? That the way that that culture interacts and that, that, that they just do that because they're just bad people? Or they're just not as intelligent as me? They, they just don't come from the right culture the way that I come from the right culture. Does your culture actually deserve that? Or are you making an unfair bias towards it? Or how many of us assume that another person's culture is better and then change the way that we interact so that we get on their good side and their favor? So we say no to certain types of friends and we prioritize hanging out with these friends because we think that it will advance us somehow in society, that we'll be in the in crowd, that we'll be connected to the right people. Maybe it's not culture, but a career. At work, we, we try to look at people and we think, I'm going to flatter my supervisor. I'm going to show favoritism towards this person because this person seems to be the boss's favorite and I want to be on the good side of the boss. Or I'm going to avoid these people because, man, I think I'm, no one wants to be seen with them. It won't help them in the long term. Or maybe it's money. We prioritize spending time with people who have wealth either because we see ourselves as wealthy and we want to match them, or because we think you could help me in the long run. 
And so when we have friends, we prioritize spending our time with people who could advance us in society. All of this, whether we actually do it or whether we think about doing it and desire to do it in our hearts, is showing favoritism. It's showing partiality. It's making a judgment call of what is worthy and what is valuable. Which means all of us need to know how we can defeat this sin. How do we keep from being condemned as lawbreakers? And the answer comes to us, it comes to us through the gospel itself. Partiality is defeated by the gospel. That's James's point in verse 1. That's the glory of verse 1. Go back and look at it. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. We are called to show no partiality as we hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Jesus possesses all glory. He possesses all worth. He possesses all wealth, all status, all honor. He is the highest. All authority in heaven and on earth is his. He is the most glorious. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Church, behold the Lord of glory. He is inherently glorious. Jesus Christ, we hold the faith in the Lord of glory. And yet, our Lord of glory does not identify with the high and the lofty, but with the low and the despised. He impartially chooses, not based upon what we bring to the table. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, 26. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. If Christ were to show partiality or favoritism in who he called into his kingdom, not one of us would be there. We bring nothing to the kingdom of God except our own sin, except our own shame, except our own weakness. We don't try and draw attention, Christ's attention to us. We are the rebellious. We are the dirty. We are the broken. We are the shamed. And yet Christ writes our rebellion. He cleanses our filth. He heals our brokenness. And he bestows honor upon our shame. And then he gives us his riches. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. 
our Lord of glory became poor in order to bring us into his glory. If he were only calling the glorious to himself, we wouldn't be there. And so he condescends, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and suffers and dies the worst death imaginable in order to bring us to God. The grace of Christ is gloriously impartial. It's gloriously impartial, and it's available for all who call upon the name of the Lord. And just as those who have been forgiven will also forgive, those who have experienced the impartial mercy of Christ will themselves withhold judgment and be impartial. Look at verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. As Christians, we are set free from the law of condemnation. Our law-breaking was nailed to the cross of Christ. He paid our debt in full. We bear it no more. We are under a different law, and that is the law of Christ, the law of liberty, the new covenant work of Christ. We saw last week that that law is written on our hearts, and we receive a new nature so that we can defeat sin. The power of sin, the penalty of sin is defeated in our lives, and if we have received the Holy Spirit, we receive the implanted word, the law has been written on our hearts, then we can triumph over partiality and live in a way that defeats judgment of partiality. So because partiality was defeated by Christ, we can defeat it in our own lives. So when the rich man enters in, and the poor man enters in, when the really important man, by the world standards, enters in, and the really unimportant man enters in, how should we view them? We view them through the lens of Christ, through the work of the gospel. We are not impressed by riches. And we do not despise the poor. Because we know that both of those people are flat broke before God apart from Christ. And yet Jesus came so that both of them might be made rich with the true riches of Christ himself. We see people rather than through the way the world views them of what can you bring me? We see them as those who are created in God's image, valuable before him regardless of where they came from or what they have to bring to their name. We see people as loved by God, precious souls for whom Christ died. And we love them and we honor them and we welcome them as God in Christ has welcomed us. We are all flattened at the foot of the cross because of our sin. And by faith in Christ, we are all exalted, not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done. That is the power to defeat partiality. And that is the good news of the gospel.
Lord God, we thank you that when we were dead in our sins, you made us alive. That when we were far from you, you brought us near. Lord, I pray that we would see the world the way you do, Jesus. That we would love people the way that we are called to. And that we would show no partiality as we hold the faith in our Lord Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we respond and worship God through singing.